Welcome to the FDIC podcast. My name is Sultan Megji. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer, and I am incredibly excited today to have a returning guest, Dr. Jimmy Lenz from the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke, along with two of his other colleagues, Dr. Jungsang Kim and Chris Monroe, who are two of the leading minds in quantum computing here in the United States. And uh, as those who follow me on social media know, this is an area I spend a lot of time talking about, and we're just really fortunate to have these these experts on. And, and since you already know Jimmy, I won't ask him to introduce himself because we already did that, but I'll uh, I'll turn it over to uh, to Dr. Kim first to introduce himself, then to uh, then to Dr. Monroe, and we can we can go from there. All right. Thank you, Sultan, for uh, having me on this podcast. My name is Jungsan Kim. Um, I'm a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Duke University, also in physics, um, and I work on trapped iron quantum computing. I've been working on that for for almost two decades now, uh, along with Chris. Um, and Chris and I also co-founded INQ, uh, and I'm serving as the uh, chief technology officer uh, at INQ at, this, at the same time. Very nice to meet all of you. Thanks, Sultan. Uh, my, my introduction will be very parallel. Uh, Jung Sang and I have been working very closely for a couple of decades. I'm also at Duke University in departments of electrical and computer engineering and physics. Um, yes, we co-founded INQ five or six years ago. I would say Jung Sang is a little more of the uh, experienced consummate engineer, and I'm a little more on the scientific research side. And this field of quantum computing is a wonderful marriage between those two. I think it really demands activity on both sides because as we'll as we'll discuss the use cases for quantum computing you know we're only hinting at you know we only have a, a glimpse at what these things will be able to do so there really needs to be a big community both in in uh, in the commercial space in industry but also on the university and government lab research side to frame it just a little bit, you know, uh, most of our listeners are people in, in the banking sector, in the in the federal government regulatory sector, you know, not necessarily the, you know, not everyone has a PhD in computer science or physics. So maybe what we could do is is ask uh, to start off by just saying, maybe talk about some of the research that you guys are going through, you know, working on right now on the university side. And as you're doing that, maybe, maybe go just a, a little bit deeper into some of the basics of quantum computing for some of our listeners. Sure, maybe I'll maybe I'll dive in. Um, it's a uh, the subject of quantum computing is very easy to talk about uh, at a high level, at a low level, because um, at its core, it's actually fairly simple. Uh, e even though it involves concepts that are completely foreign to our everyday life, and and I'm I'm you know, I started off as a physicist, and in physics, you know, we really teach, we really understand things through analogy. Like throwing a baseball around, we can predict exactly what's going to happen there. And we can apply that to all kinds of things remarkably. You know, even you can think of analogies to a transistor, a single transistor in your classical computer. There are, there are analogies to, you know, a, a, a switching, switching networks, for instance. But in quantum, um, even though there are straightforward rules to apply bits and information to the quantum world, um, we, we there, there is no analogy, and that starts really at the core. Quantum systems are allowed to be in sort of a confused state of reality, and people have probably read this. Most people have a little inkling that there's some weird stuff going on in quantum. But when you apply it to information, the bit, which is a, typically a definite state of one or zero, in quantum uh, mechanics, the quantum bit can be in both one and zero at the same time. It's not noise. 
And what makes it really tricky is that at the end, you have to measure you know, any computer, you have to look at the output. And what does it mean to measure something that's in many states? I'm being very vague, but um, there are lots of problems like this that can be cast like this that we tend to ignore right now because they're too hard on a, on a regular computer. So on the research side, are there any and it doesn't have to be applied to banking. You know, we can. I'm sure this is this is going to be way more interesting to the computer scientists than, than the bankers here. But are there questions that you guys are starting to look at that historically we just haven't been able to look at that are that are top of mind? Yeah, that. Let me actually try to take that one. I think I think as as you mentioned, right? The uh, when the digital computers came about, we can start to do a whole lot of things that we didn't even imagine doing before. And now with the internet being everywhere, we're doing a lot of things today that we didn't imagine was possible. Just like this, you know, online podcast. We've been dreaming about video conferencing for many, many, many decades <laughs> from the 40s, um, but it's now, it's now really became a reality and, and it's actually adding to productivity. Um, so the question really is, you know, what can quantum do um, that is, uh, you know, that is not a bit, not possible today? And just like in the early days of computing, when the when Intel first came out with a, with a microprocessor, um, people thought uh, the amazing use of it would be handheld calculators, right? Our imagination is limited because we, we don't know how to do things that we have never thought about doing, right? Um, so I think quantum is kind of in that space. Um, you know, the, the, the interesting note is just in the last few years, these quantum computers have become accessible, right? We, we use the, the, the power of cloud infrastructure and many um, commercial systems. I mean, of course, Chris and I have been building resource systems and, and collaborating with certain uh, research community to, to run some small problems to, as proof of concept. Uh, but now the commercial systems have uh, put uh, these quantum computers online. A lot of people can access it uh, at the same time. Uh, so that actually opens up a lot of imagination space rather than you know the the handful of researchers we can actually directly collaborate now there can be thousands of users around the world who have an idea or can actually try them out yeah, those are great summaries i want to i want to double click on two of them and and maybe what i'll do is i'll turn it over to jimmy on the applied sure. side because he lives in the applied side of, of banking risk and artificial <laughs> intelligence and and maybe ask him to talk about what that translates to you know, on the applied side, as we think about yeah, risk I think what, in particular. I think what Dr. Kim mentioned is is spot on. I mean, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, I mean, right now we're very limited by uh, when we run scenarios of different kinds, in particular, multi-dimensional scenarios by the computational power that's out there. Uh, I think quantum provides uh, or may provide a very different way of us uh, thinking about risk, in particular, risks that are occurring in dynamic environments. Uh, right now, the, the computational power just doesn't exist to, to process that. Uh, and so because of it, we're, we're often left kind of in the dark uh, or we're, we're working to remediate things where we could have, we could have actually stopped them. Uh, and and I, don't, I, I think that's, that's one of the huge advantages that this offers. In particular, when you're talking about such an interconnected financial environment like we have now, um, where you know banks don't operate um, in unique or in a vacuum, uh, they operate as part of a, of a really large ecosystem, and it's, it's a global ecosystem. Um, you know, trying to monitor those kinds of things is uh, is is almost impossible right now in real time. Right, we're always doing it next day or or even after that, and so the opportunities that quantum uh, provides, I think, uh, opens a, a very, very different door um, 
very similar to, you know, I think for on the customer side, um, you know, the cybersecurity side and things like that, it opens a door that, you know, thus far, we, we haven't been, even been able to approach, we haven't even been able to turn the handle, um, because we, we just don't have that, uh, the, the means to do that. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge challenge in the financial system, right? I mean, in many cases, the banking sector is looking at data, you know, 60, 90, 120 days after the event occurred. So not only is it, is it, is it, you know, dealing with it after the fact, you're then dealing with the cleanup, you know, many days, weeks, months later. And one of the biggest, you know, evolutions over the last few years is moving towards more real-time systems. You know, and digital assets is just one example of that. We've got real-time payments infrastructure. We have credit cards. We have all these different things that are moving in real time, and, and so much of the banking system is not designed for that. And so as we, as we deal with that kind of real-time risk discussion, there is a huge, huge risk opportunity that's beginning to present itself that, that this then is a potential solution set for, right? I mean, this is not a problem we have to deal with today or tomorrow, but, you know, in my job, I have to think five or 10 years in the future. Give me a readout. How are we doing? You know, are we training enough people? Are the, are the, are the ones who are coming in from other countries staying here? You know, and, and I'll just, you know, go, go around and I'll start with the with Dr. Kim first, but just, you know, Dr. Kim and Dr. Monroe, then Dr. Lunch, just, you know, tell me how you think we're doing. Great. Uh, no, that's, a, that's an incredibly interesting question. You know, I think these, uh, the technology pendulum swings, as you say, today, if you look at the uh, high tech industry, just because over the last 20 years, uh, the, the, the biggest value have been created by writing good software on internet infrastructure. Um, so I do feel like there's a lot of challenges to pull this together to really make an impact. But that also means there's a huge opportunities for a lot of our young talent uh, to come in and get excited about this. Um, so, and I do, I do feel like the the expertise here will take time to train. Uh, I'm sure, you know, um, when we were growing up, <laughs> you know, we, we started poking at, you know, basic programming language and C programming language. Those are, um, and, and there weren't too many people who are, who are programming in the, in the eighties uh, in middle school. But today I think most students are doing that. Um, and it is those early adopters who actually have invested their time in new technologies who are actually driving the growth of the, uh, the, the computer and the internet industry uh, decades later. Uh, but I think over time, as the access to quantum computer becomes more available, uh, we should really reach out to the K-12 uh, kind of population to really think about how, how to do this. Although it, it sounds very, very, very exotic, um, you know, middle schoolers in the 80s, those who learned how to program back then have, have had a, a fantastic career and, and really moved the needle and changed the world. So maybe we should start on all fronts. Dr. Monroe, I'll turn over to you. Your kind of similar question. Getting people into this field, there, there seems to be a big wall and one that I, the one that I really, really don't like. And, and that is, oh, quantum physics is so hard. The math is so complicated. So it's not the math that's hard. And I said this earlier, what, what's strange is that we don't have analogies and this is really where the wall is. And it's, it's, it's not needed. You don't need special expertise to imagine what it's like to have a baseball in two places at once. You can just imagine it. That's all we can do. That's all Einstein could do. He did. He never accepted the theory. Really. He thought there was something else going on that we didn't yet understand. He called them their hidden variables that we haven't observed yet. And look, if he, if he didn't, accept it you know where where are the rest of us look the laws of physics are different we don't live down there so um i i, I really um think that people shouldn't be opposed to, to thinking about quantum but just because they weren't very good at algebra 2 in high school that's not the point 
I think, um, uh, you know, Jung Sang said it, that getting, especially young people who are, you know, they, they, they don't really understand how a transistor works, <laughs> yet they're doing things, they're, they're doing amazing things in coding that I could, I could probably not touch at, at, at this stage. I see, I see college freshmen who just have astounding skills in, uh, in coding and programming and so forth, yet they know nothing about the physics, the underlying technology in their device. So it didn't hold them, it didn't hold them back at all. So, so uh, I, I, I back what Junk Sang says, the young people, they might not have a background in quantum physics, so what? Teach them the rules, they're straightforward. And it's almost like a cultural change has to happen. People have to start thinking probabilistically. Jimmy, you know, maybe say some of this as well, but like, I want to, I want to riff on, on Dr. Martin Rose comment a little bit and just say like, how do we, how do we do that? And what does this actually mean for the banking sector, right? What does this mean for the financial services sector? I think know? that, um, when we, when we consider all the limitations in financial services today, uh, probably the, the most prevalent is, um, you know, we, we think about, you know, legacy, uh, systems and legacy environments and, and all kinds of things like that. But I think legacy thinking is probably the most, the, the most prolific and most prevalent. And, and it's the key thing that keeps, keeps things, uh, you know, in, in their place. Uh, I think building on what, what Chris said a little bit, this, this idea of being able to think through and think in a little bit different way, um, consider problems uh, and consider how we articulate problems. It's funny. I'm so I'm I'm teaching uh, machine learning this semester, and and I spend two classes on articulating your problems um, because you know you you can't just throw a bunch of stuff in the machine and have it articulate the problem for you. I, I think that having and students, young people, they they do have much broader considerations, right? They're not jaded by um, the legacy of experience. Uh, younger people are are more accepting, but I think. A good bit of it is because they haven't been jaded um, by by the experience that uh, that some of us that are a little bit older may have, um, and 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 I and that is a real thing. Um, you know, I I hate to say, you know, I'm I know because I'm like that. Um, I, I I love when students come to me and uh, they're using an algorithm that I you know in a way that I never expected. I would have never used in a million years. And, uh, and why? Because I don't have, I don't have that. I don't have those broad considerations. I don't have maybe, you know, some of the diversity of, um, you know, skills that they, they picked up over their very young lives. You know, if I'm a bank CEO and I'm listening to this conversation, if I've made it this far, um, you know, <laughs> um, you know, what, what, what's something, you know, that, that, that they should be thinking about as they think about the next couple of years in this space? Is it what they need to be proactive about in terms of getting ready to introduce this technology? Is it something they need to be maybe defensive about in terms of, of what happens if bad guys get access to their technology? Is it, you know, do I just put this on the back burner and retire and wait for the next guy to have to deal with it? You know? Yeah. Imagine the opportunities. I think that's what, that's what they need to do is imagine the opportunities, um, that, that this provides. Uh, I think coming at it from a traditional defensive, uh, point of view, which, which is what banks usually operate from, um, is, is that's not an option here. I think it using this, as we spoke about before, um, as an opportunity to, you know, to move into a very, very different area to provide services in a very different way. And, and whether that's a, you know, a traditional bank or an investment bank trading type operation, I, I think that this provides, um, this allows us to, you know, let our minds run a little bit more 
than uh, maybe they have in the past. Um, but certainly, I think this is this is an opportunity is how they should view this. Fantastic, Dr. Monroe. Well, I, I not not being in the financial sector, uh, I, I do know that um, that physicists in particular probably have a bum rap from the last thirty years. You know, on complex derivative instruments, things with CDOs, things like this. Um, this is this is quite different. It's not it's not trusting models that um, that that physicists are wowing other sectors on uh, that. Oh, we, we can solve this model. Therefore, it's it's going to be active. It's this is not that at all. This this is, again, much more fundamental. It's a new way of computing. And eventually we'll get away from the physics where people will be comfortable with the fact that they can think about optimizing uh, 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 things that maybe they couldn't otherwise. So I would say you know, my, my one thought is that it, in the financial sector or otherwise, it doesn't have to be just finances, logistics and so forth. If there are models, uh, keep coming up with models, <laughs> even if they're not, even if you can't solve them, even if you can't touch them with all the computing power in the world, you know, keep, it's easy to write down a model that's insoluble. Um, keep thinking about those and, and poking at it because there could be a new generation of hardware that can start to solve those. Yeah. So I, I think, I think I agree with the, with both of them, right? So, um, you know, these new technologies, although they, they, they feel very nascent and maybe even, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, unbelievable. Um, they can change things. We, we, I, I see an example like, you know, the, when the Wrights brothers first took off uh, in the Kitty Hawk of, of North Carolina shores, um, that was one moment where people felt, uh, okay, this is an entirely new uh, understanding of how things fly. It's nothing like how, you know, bugs or, or, or birds flew. Um, but we today put up, you know, 5,000 tons of metal in the air, and that's how we fly. And and it is it is actually normal that that is the right the new science, a new way of understanding. Think about what that has changed. Um, think about the uh, the way that banking was done in the 50s before the computers. Everything was manual, written piece of papers. Think about uh, the changes that computers have brought about to the banking industry. And imagine you missed that, where your bank would be. Think about the internet in the 90s um, and how that has changed banking industry entirely today in, in the course of two decades. And imagine what would have happened if you felt that was technology too nascent, too early and, and decided to skip on it. Where would, you, where, where would your bank be today? Now, quantum may or may not make that kind of a change in the, in the future. We just don't know. And nobody can predict the future, but it could. Right. So think about what if you what if you miss this wave that was as big as computers or or, or Internet? Um, and what would it take to hedge against that? How and, and that and then the answer should never be sit around and wait until somebody else does it. Oh, fantastic. And, and that's a great way to, to end the conversation, because there are so many banks out there that did kind of wait a little too long, you know, to really get into into this the more online side of the world. And, and it's really, you know. The, you see, you see a marked difference in the institutions who who've done that versus who haven't. So that's a that's a great parallel here. Um, and, and so with that, uh, I just want to thank all three of our guests, Dr. Kim, Dr. Monroe, and Dr. Lenz, for for a a very a more technical version of the FDIC podcast than normal. So we'll probably have to put it in a note, say listen to the last <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> but 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 thank you all so much, and uh, and I look forward to speaking to you all again. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Very good, Sultan. Thank you.